dangerously close. for good buddy well hello there good buddies it's me big greg doug and you know two things i love the open road and freedom but if there's one thing i love more than freedom and that's if you were to leave a five-star rating on your podcast app for this podcast or you could leave a nice review and say something nice like i like this podcast now i know of course what you're thinking is Doug, of course you like that more than freedom, but what do you love more than the open road? Well, the only thing I could love more than the open road would be if you were to share this podcast with your CB radio, or on your social media, with all your friends, or maybe even with your cell phone to just one friend. All those things would make me so happy. Well, until then, I'm back on the open road. Please enjoy the episode. My guest today is Adriana Barton. Adriana is a journalist and author of Wired for Music, a search for health and joy through the science of sound. A former staff health reporter at Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, she has written about medical research, neuroscience, visual arts, music, and pop culture for publications, including the Boston Globe, Reader's Digest, Utney. Is that how you pronounce it? Utney? Yep. Uh, hell yeah. First try. Azure. Is that how you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. All right. I'm two for two. Western Living and San Francisco Bay Guardian. She studied the cello for 17 years with teachers, including international solo artist Antonio Lisi. Yep. I have not messed up a name yet. This is fantastic. <laughs> And former Cleveland Orchestra principal cellist, Stephen Gaber. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I think you looked these up. No, I, I, <laughs> I recall, I honestly, I'm pretty stoked that I got Lisey. Because it's, if you, if you guys at home, if you saw how these names were spelled, you would be pretty surprised that I'm, that I'm saying these right. Uh, research projects have taken her to Syria. Jordan, India, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and Brazil. She lives in Vancouver, Canada, with her husband and son. What's up, Adriana? Good morning. I guess it's afternoon for you. And uh, I'm just so delighted to to get an invitation to talk to a (laughs) podcaster in Nashville. It's very cool for me. I'm delighted to have you here. As I was telling you before we got started, I read your book. I've been enjoying it immensely. Uh, Also, thank you for uh, being... Just, you know, being patient with me, just being so self-congratulatory while reading your bio <laughs> every time I pronounced a word right. <laughs> well, I hope um, you didn't mind my kidding about looking them up. And before we do any more, I want to congratulate you on being a new dad. I oh. saw that news on Instagram and was completely touched and delighted for you because it's such a new experience. I, I guess you're a first time dad. Is that right? Yes, yeah, is my first time being a dad. And this wow. is my first time doing a podcast being a dad. And wow. as, as you had suggested, I will go ahead and do a little disclaimer. Guys, I have not been sleeping. So if uh, if I sound more discombobulated than usual, that's why. But 
I sound discombobulated on this podcast every time. So I don't think anybody would, they would just be like, this is just regular old. This dude is, I have trouble focusing on one thing at a time. So I'm, there's like, it's hard for me to not go on tangents. <laughs> if you're not sleeping enough, it means you're be doing an awesome job as a dad. Cause it means you're holding your baby in the middle of the night when that baby wants nurturing and cuddles. So you're doing a great job already, Doug. Thank you. And I got, yeah, and uh, shout out, I got a baby monitor for uh, the baby shower, and man, what a priceless tool. I, did <laughs> I got it, and I was like, I was like, okay, cool, walkie-talkies, sure. No, I'm like, damn, this thing is like, I have to have it, like, so it's pretty sick. Have uh, you discovered the power of the Snuggly, another incredible tool, or a carrier, baby carrier? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. That's in your future. I have a, a feeling. <laughs> He's still so light. I don't really, I just carry him on my arm, but I've got like a cool little backpack he goes in. He's just not big enough yeah. for it yet. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to share something with you uh, that I think you might find interesting. So also to the listeners at home, people that listen to this podcast know that I'm really in a synchronicity. And today a very like special thing happened. So I just wanted to bring it up. Uh, I was going to say, you know, before we get started with the real interview uh, if you like uh the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible <laughs> causal connection then you're going to love today's my views are my own moment of synchronicity uh this is a good one too I'm, i promise uh you know how uh you wrote about meeting yo-yo ma and yep. talking to him about cello stuff in your book so this morning i opened up uh my twitter app this morning while I was waiting to start this podcast. And literally the first thing in my timeline was Yo-Yo Ma uh, playing uh, in the Gale for Earth Day. And it was just wow. like him in the forest playing. And the, the thing is, incidentally, one of my favorite holidays, shout out Earth Day. But uh, I don't follow Yo-Yo Ma. It wasn't like that's someone I follow. So some person randomly retweeted that at precisely the moment that I would see it when I opened the app. So that's today's that is, mo moment of synchronicity. Yeah, that has got to be synchronicity. And Yo-Yo Ma, as you know, because you've read my book at this point, I think you've gotten through it. I don't know. Um, he pops up a few times. Yeah. So that, that's what I was saying is like, I don't know when the last time that I had heard anyone speak about Yo-Yo Ma, you know, because I'm not, it's not uh, a genre of music that I'm particularly, uh, that I listen to a whole lot, you know, like if you look at yeah. my Spotify rap, you're like, this guy's a, this guy has no class, so, <laughs> but no, I, but I do like Yo-Yo Ma. I don't I do. judge. <laughs> um, but, but I just thought it was such a great moment of synchronicity because, you know, I probably hadn't heard about him in forever. And then I read your book and I'm like, oh, Yo-Yo Ma, yeah, for sure. You know, like I know who this is. And then out of nowhere, the day I'm interviewing you, open up the app, boom, he's right there playing the cello. I just thought yeah. that had to be shared. So thank you for indulging me <laughs> oh i think it's wild and also completely apropos and I, I have to say there have been so many neat events like that for me since my book came out in october so many people coming out and reaching out to me and and writing to me uh this week there was a a, a letter from a dinosaur paleontologist in london <laughs> Oh, cool. <laughs> who wrote to me about my book and and quite a few other people every week from different areas that I would never have imagined. I, I always wonder, how does my book find these people? You yeah. know, I uh, 
the thing like right before I had started reading your book, I had had a thought. So just like it was like just a thing while I was driving my car and I was listening to Tribe Call Quest, which I don't hardly ever listen to them anymore. And I was just thinking about rhyming, you know, and just like and I was like, why do rhyme words sound more pleasing than regular words? That was just like a, a curiosity I had. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'll never know. But then I discovered your book and I discovered so much more about how the brain works. And yeah, but we'll get into all of that. I just. uh Yeah. That was kind of a, like I said, everyone, I haven't slept. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, hey, I promise we're going to start a legitimate interview really soon. Uh, but do you mind if I just heap some praise onto your work for a minute? Oh, Would that be okay? sure. Bring it on. <laughs> but, well, you know, I just want to share my personal experience with the book. So like, but it is, I just want to, you know, uh, you know, kind of gas you up a little bit if that's if that's okay <laughs> i uh so at first i thought uh, the hardest part about reading your book was that i felt like you were constantly giving me good reasons to go listen to music instead of to read and <laughs> and like i said before i have difficulty focusing on one thing at a time anyway so uh i actually frequently did stop reading and listen to music instead i was like because you would say something about this or that and i'd go oh yeah man that reminds me of you know this artist I want to listen to, and I just would stop reading the book and I'd go listen to some music, and I was like, "It's going to take me forever. I'll never finish this book if I keep doing this." Uh, and I thought it was going to be a problem, uh, but it wasn't. It actually made me like you know kind of appreciate the music more, and then appreciate the book more. Uh, so it ended up being like a more of a multi sensory, immersive book experience. It's like very unique. So. Just want to say like that, you know, a cool, I mean, in the, like in the heaping praise uh, area, like typically if I'm reading someone's book and I keep putting it down because I want to go listen to music, that is not uh <laughs> praise. But in the case of your book, it's like your book was telling me to listen to music. And then I would go and have a deeper experience with my music and then come back to the book and have a more appreciative experience with the book. So. I love that. And you know, I actually did not in any way anticipate that. And certain reviewers also have said this in their their reviews of the book, that they use the book that way. They put it down, went and listened to something they'd never heard before, and then went back to the book. Because I talk about lots of different types of music in the book. Yeah. I'm not, it's not a classical music book in any way. And I don't want anyone to think that just because we mentioned Yo-Yo Ma. And I think I need to make a playlist, uh, <laughs> a Wired oh, for Music yes. playlist. And That's do, a good idea. Yeah, and do it chapter by chapter. So chapter one, when I'm talking about this, is these are all the 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 pieces referenced because um, that would make it maybe a little easier for people who do use the book that way. That's actually, I'm so stoked on that because I was curious if I was the only person who had, had said that. So that's awesome that I'm not the only person who was like, oh, this is, this is the way, I mean, just for me, that's just naturally how it seemed like ended up being the the right way to read the book was to like, whenever it, it had to be inspired to listen to music, to just go with that and be like, all right, I want to listen to music right now. The books got me hyped up on music. Uh, it reminds me like of when I was a kid and I would get like a new skate video, like skateboarding and I would like watch it and I'd, you know, I'd love it. I'd want to keep watching it, but it would get me so hyped. I'd have to get out and go skate and have to come back to it later. Mm -hmm. And very similar uh, experience with the book. It's like the book got me hyped. I was like, I got to listen to music. I'll come back to this book after, you know, after I'm done with the music. So that's cool. That's cool that uh, I'm not the only one. 
No. And I, again, as I said, it, it's not something I anticipated. And um, there is research showing that we really do get stuck in our listening ways, kind of like arrested development around <laughs> age yeah. 18, age 22. Um, uh, but if we kind of push ourselves to purposefully listen to music we don't normally listen to sometimes we'll broaden our horizons musically and so it's really great that you did that are there any pieces that or types of or genres that stood out to you that you listen to that you're like huh I kind of dig that um not specifically like off the top of my head that I can like pull out of my memory right now just because my memory is functioning at a pretty like small percentage but one thing i did do which i never ever ever do but it was just because it was re reading your book and it was just making me want to be like hey i need to branch out and it's exactly like you said i am i was had been very stagnant with music and also i'd, I'd, I'd become kind of like regressive recently where i was like i only want to listen to what i liked when i was 20 like i had it's gotten like comfort food right yeah 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 it's like <laughs> but the thing is you gotta eat your vegetables man you can't just eat chips and like <laughs> nachos you know you gotta like you got to have some uh, nice, healthy salads occasionally. And so I definitely uh, had some eat your vegetables moments for sure reading the book. And one of the things was just uh, something that I never use. I have Spotify and it's a, a feature I never use, which is the new release radar where it um, it just it's just new releases based on what it thinks you like. And I'm always like, you don't know what I like Spotify. <laughs> and so uh, I ignore it, but it actually... I went in there and found a bunch of new bands. I was like, oh, cool. Like the, you know, like songs dropped based on their like algorithmic guess it what I like. And I mean, I will say they were wrong 50% of the time of what I might like, but <laughs> so it's not too bad a batting average for, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For something as specific as musical taste. AI has taken over the world. <laughs> oh yeah. Definitely another conversation. <laughs> Oh, I'll say that no AI was used in the making of my book. I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> there was no combative chat bot in there. No. Nope. Um, hey, but here's a, here's a real question. Uh, uh, and it's this. What's up with uh, punk drummers thinking they can tell people what it means to be a real musician? Because <laughs> you're not the only person who's experienced a punk drummer mouthing off and telling really? you what music yeah that's like who, who else would you think of who does that do you know how many punk drummers i've known in my life i really don't i don't think i can count on two hands how many because there's been quite a few uh, okay i mean i was like that was like the first kind of band i was ever in was in a punk band okay so I, you knew this guy i'm talking about yeah what was his name steve or something I used a pseudonym for that one okay yeah. <laughs> i think anyway. i called him dave in the book dave well, would you like to would you like to share your punk drummer experience, and then I, if if I could maybe bring up some of my punk drummers? Well, you know, he kind of broke my heart, uh, and yeah. not romantically. Uh, he broke my heart musically because at that point I was super fresh off quitting the cello for good, and it was probably the most devastating breakup I've ever had was with the cello, not with a person. Yeah, and uh, I was sort of walking wounded uh you know my entire identity had crashed around my feet and um i was shaky inside i was 24 years old and i i, uh, I left the cello around 22 and uh, i'd only done that for 17 years of my life from 5 to 22 and um this punk drummer who i was drawn to 
because what he was doing with music was so cool and so different yeah. and so wild and so free and so visceral uh, you know uh, i was i was drawn to what he was doing musically and we had this relationship and uh he said one night as we were lying in bed or maybe it was morning you are not a, mu a real musician you are not a real real musician and i was already dealing with this intense sense of failure and nobody ever told me as a cellist that I didn't have what it takes. In fact, I got the opposite. I got so much encouragement, so many opportunities, so many scholarships and support. And, you know, doors open for me as a cellist. Uh, there were other things that happened that I explore in the book that that resulted in my crash and burn as a cellist. But it wasn't people telling me I had no talent or no ability. Um, but inside, that's how I felt, because it's such a perfectionist endeavor and such a formal training and so competitive and so um, laser focused uh, that I felt I hadn't, I felt like a, I felt like a failure at 15 because I hadn't already debuted with the New York Phil, you know, yeah. which <laughs> the prodigies were doing that at eight. So I was already over the hill at 15 in my mind, you know, and uh, of course I wasn't going destined to be a soloist. I probably would have, went on to be you know a chamber music player or an orchestral musician or something like that but anyhow he mirrored this punk drummer what I was already feeling inside which was that I had no value musically and it, it gutted me yeah um can I tell you what I said when I read that uh, part of the book yeah I went, I went dickhead <laughs> I said, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about I, uh, so like I said I, I've uh, I've encountered many 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 punk drum drummers in my life and I probably will encounter a thousand more before my life's over I have I have a th I have theories uh, one especially like in the punk music uh, world in that scene uh, so like someone like me might be a dime a dozen like someone who can play some power chords and scream into a microphone and likes attention boom like that's you know that's what i was bringing to the table at that time and everybody was bringing that to the table <clears throat> the thing about a drummer is drummers are like one of the heart like especially like in a town like where i live i live in a you know a big music town drummers are special because first of all they have to have a drum kit they have to yeah. know how to play the drums and if especially if, if they're a pocket drummer and they're good yeah. everybody wants them so they have this inflated sense of self-worth because everybody needs a drummer but there's like one drummer to every 20, I would say one drummer to every 30 guitar players. Well, Maybe. he used to walk around saying, I'm the best drummer in Montreal. And I'm like, have you met the jazz drummers at, at, at the McGill University where I went to school? Like yeah. the jazz drummers were unbelievable. But of course, because he was a big fish in the punk scene, I'm the best drummer in Montreal. Yeah. You know, that's absurd. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say something too about like the thing. I'm I'm not like a giant metalhead. I listen to metal, but you know, that's what something you find with like, if you're gonna find an arrogant drummer who maybe like uh, deserves it, it's a lot more in metal because a lot of the guys in metal do start in jazz and they do start in like in classical music because metal drumming is incredibly difficult or you know like depending on which band it is. But a lot complex. of those guys, I mean, those those guys are yeah, that's complex drumming. That's yeah. absurdly difficult. So. Anyway, I have I got my opinions about those punk drummers, and I've had a few punk drummers mouth off to me in my life about what I don't I don't know what music is, or it's like 
if I think that a Madonna song is good, I'm stupid. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you related to that character, not personally, but from people you've met. <laughs> oh, that was, I was, it was a visceral moment for me. When, I, when that punk drummer tried to disrespect you, I was like, boy, man. <laughs> so anyway, shut up. Well, babe. You, you, you got know what to the about. point. Sorry, you you got to the the spot in the later in the chapter when I'm like, I wanted to chase him down and track him down and tell him he was wrong about me. <laughs> yeah, well, he was wrong, obviously, and then also, uh, I didn't that kind of kick into like, you kind of go into like your childhood before you were like getting hardcore because your I mean your description of what it was like to be a cellist sounds like basically being in like boot camp, but for like. 17 years straight like never yeah, or getting it's out sort of like what ballet dancers go through or yeah. or you know young elite hockey players or you know sports have lots of uh parallels i think yeah. like gymnastics that kind of thing yeah where it's like half your childhood is like uh training and yeah. not just outside playing which is like i don't know man i'm not gonna i'm not gonna chime in on that because i don't i don't know i mean it's Otherwise, how would we have like, you know, like you said, all these excellent, you know, top of the world people in these different sports and arenas. But uh, you were saying like when you were younger, like didn't you like didn't you and your mom like go around and like do like like super crazy hippie music? So that is the that's the wild thing. Uh, uh, what I realized. So you learn. I didn't set out to write a book with memoir elements. And that's a whole story why it ended up being that way. I didn't intend to do that. There were reasons why I ended up bringing those elements into the book. And this neat thing that happens when you have a chance to look back um, on your life is you start to see connections that you didn't know were there. And so I didn't have memory of that hippie stage. I was two, three years old, really young. Yeah. What I realized, so I was enrolled in this strict conservatory that was probably the most draconian training you could find in North America. Um, the reason for that was that we didn't have money. And the state-run conservatory in Quebec had free lessons. And my mom really wanted me and my older sister to be exposed to music. And that was the way she could make that happen because that was it was free. But it wasn't your Saturday afternoon lesson. It was a whole gamut of theory, ear training, orchestra, chamber music, private lesson every single week, hours a week from five. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was a, it was a Faustian bargain, you know, free lessons in exchange for absolute dedication to the life of a professional musician in training. Yeah. And I didn't know that was the deal. I was five years old. When I was thinking about my life and, and working on the book, I realized there was this whole earlier introduction to music that I'd had because my mom, um, so my father died when I was an infant. My mom was hitchhiking with, she was 26 with two small children and a widow. And so she hitchhiked across Canada and ended up in Vancouver, where I now live, interestingly. And she kind of shacked up with these hippie musicians who were doing this radical thing and one of them had been at Woodstock he was a Californian man and he he would also he was also involved with the beat poets like he was one of those you know happening people a bohemian guy 
And he started these spontaneous music workshops for children with autism and Down syndrome, which was radical at the time. It was the early 70s. Yeah. And they had gongs and they had dangling car parts and they had drums and they had rattles and shakers. And they just have these children come and and make music spontaneously improvised in a way that felt good to the children. And they would jam with these children who had profound disabilities. And I was there. I was at all those sessions as a toddler, kind of prowling around, rattling things and, and being part of the happening. And we ended up going down to Mexico. But the people who stayed, who were part of that workshop group, went on to found Canada's very first degree program in music therapy. So by the age of five, six, I had on one hand, this the most free floating, hippie healing music experience that you could find. And on the other hand, the strictest training in music that you could find in North America. So the absolute extremes. And, and because I had, didn't have memory of the first, you know, the hippie part, yeah. really, um, I didn't realize until I was writing the book that maybe that's why the life of a, a classical cellist didn't feel entirely right because I'd had this early imprinting and, and maybe somehow I knew that wasn't what music was supposed to be for me, or maybe it wasn't what music was supposed to be for many of us. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like, is it like fair to say like kind of what you were doing uh, originally was like organic, like that's like an embodied natural from the heart or from the soul kind of music instinctive embodied uh in the sense that your body how the body feels doing it matters like in cello my my shoulder was raised like that my teacher never mentioned it in fact it was another student who noticed and check out my hands i have the the thumbs are are oh, completely crazy. aligned and this pinky on this side is out probably an inch and a half from the other one because of all the times my teacher would pull my hands apart so I could reach the, the far notes on this instrument that was really too big for my body. And I was in pain playing. I developed cysts in my wrists, the size of marbles, large marbles and tendonitis. And there was no, I think it's changed now in, in a lot of um, classical music training settings because there's more awareness. But at the time, no one looked at posture or how does your body feel when you're doing this? Are you breathing? Yeah. <laughs> like, are you even now we know all about breath work <laughs> through yoga, but that yeah. wasn't a thing. Like people are sitting there playing really difficult concertos, holding their breath to get through it because they're terrified. You know, yeah. it, it's, it was totally a different scene. And I knew students at university were popping Tylenol because they had inflammation and inflamed wrists and, and soft tissues. And they were just playing through the pain. It was very common. Yeah. That's kind of like when I was saying boot camp earlier, it's like, it's like treating these musicians like a lot, a lot, a lot, how they treat soldiers when they're trying to like, you know, kind of break them down and build them back up to become a, a Marine or a whatever you might want to become. But that has an end. Like when you when you join the military, boot camp is only for you know however long, however many you know weeks or months that it might be. It's not seventeen years of uh, like continuously trying to like break you down more and train you more to be like an automaton. So I don't know. It's, it sounded very intense in the book. It was, and there's another side to that. And and in the book, 
I get into a lot of this. So I, you probably noticed in the book, I, I'm not a new ager. I'm not like music is healing and powerful, no matter what. I, I, I get into the, the evidence and also do a lot of debunking. I was a health journalist. And so it matters to me, the facts matter and the research matters and the data matters. And I interviewed, uh, some of the top neuroscientists in the world who study music. And among them, I interviewed uh, Dr. Robert Zatori at McGill, who was part of the team that that proved without a doubt that music stimulates dopamine in the brain. And that's really important because dopamine, the dopamine pathways truly affect our pleasure reward circuitry, which has all kinds of downstream effects on our health, including pain relief, mental health improvements and things like that. But anyway, what's interesting and important about that is that the pleasure reward circuitry actually gets shut down when we feel we're in a state of threat. And so that the threat system is kind of called the technically the periventricular system. And that's that's what causes the uh, fight, flight, free, <laughs> fight, fright. Uh, flight, fight, flight, <laughs> freeze, and fawn. Uh, sorry, uh, you. Can, I'll try and say that. Slower. No, no. Oh. Well, <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't know the other. I only, I only knew uh, fight or flight. I didn't know there were other words in that. Well, freeze is like deer in the headlights. Okay. And fawn is a more recent uh, phenomenon that's been identified by trauma researchers, uh, uh, or trauma therapists, probably not the researchers, therapists, when you kind of placate and fawn on on an abuser to try and calm them down but anyway when we're when we're in a state of of threat um our pleasure reward system is short-circuited and that deprives us from a lot of the benefits of music and learning is impeded so you can learn when you're constantly criticized and threatened, but it's a very ineffective way of learning. You can learn despite it, but it it actually makes the process so much harder. So it it saps the pleasure and it saps the some of the learning ability. So it's really a terrible way to approach children. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, actually, so like speaking of speaking of like you as a child, uh, like learning music in the super organic way. I mean this like before you got into uh, classical training. Um, yeah, you have a chapter called uh, "Groove Interrupted," and yeah. uh, how our innate music musicality gets rusty. Yeah, and okay, this is a two-part question. Uh, one is that a title reference to uh, "Girl Interrupted," starring Winona Ryder? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to ask. I mean, <laughs> and also uh, is. I'm glad uh, you picked up on that. It was a very difficult chapter to name. Most of the chapter titles came really easily, but that one I kept like, you know, lose it, lost our groove. No, that's just cheesy, you know. So I kept. I was going to say it. that. I was going to say, how hard was it to like to restrain yourself from making a a chapter called like how Adriana got her groove back or something? Yeah, like yeah, I couldn't <laughs> stomach it. So I thought Groove Interrupted was a little more intriguing. Yeah, also, that's a good movie too. I like that movie. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm just curious. Uh, good, good notice. <laughs> there's, a, there's a real question in here. Uh, it's not just, is that about girl, <laughs> named for Girl Interrupted? Um, but the other one is, you know, what is innate musicality and why do people seem to lose touch with it over time? Kind of a, okay. kind of, it's a very broad um, question. but it's, it's actually a difficult question to answer because it's, it's very technical. I mean, I, I summed up the research um 
probably <laughs> spanning more than a million years. Uh, well, yeah, the yeah, research yeah. didn't, but the, but the I mean, there's something called a paleomusicologist, believe it or not. Yeah. So a musicologist who studies the distant origins of capacities for music pre-homo sapiens. <laughs> so so the neat thing is that a lot has changed in our thinking now. Um, people used to think of music and our abilities to do music as music as it is today. It sprang out of nowhere, what allows us to have this ability. But the the new thinking is that the the building blocks of music came first. So the ability to hear distinct pitches in in sound, believe it or not, most animals don't hear pitches the way we do. We hear, if you know about frequencies or fundamentals in, in, in sound, we hear the lowest frequency, the fundamental, as the pitch. But other animals hear a range of frequencies at once. I mean, we can still hear a range, but we kind of, our brains have attuned to a specific fundamental frequency as the pitch in the sound. Yeah. I mean, sound has many, many things going on at once, but we have developed this ability to kind of zero in on that lower frequency. And the reason probably came from language communication. We we had to zero in at one point in our evolution, our, our inner and outer ears changed in anatomically and our, um, our uh, processing of sound also changed. So that's one element. Another element is the ability to sense and entrain to rhythm. And by entrain, it means synchronize your body to rhythm. That's something that very few animals have as well. So there's some yeah. notable exceptions, like the famous cockatoo who was on the uh, the Taco Bell commercial. That was wild you know? to me. So I learned about that from your book, that there was a, yeah. a cockatoo that can dance to the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Somehow, I, somehow I, that missed me. Like, I know you said that was a, a huge uh, YouTube thing but then when you were like taco bell hired that cockatoo as a as a sponsor yeah that was what blew me away because like so like taco i i eat a lot of taco bell because it's like the only fast food restaurant that you can go to that doesn't have meat or that has things yeah. that aren't meat on them so like Are you vegetarian oh yeah i'm not like a vegan or anything like that but i'm trying not to eat i mean i sure shit wouldn't eat meat from taco bell but like you know it's just like <laughs> i'm i'm like busy a lot and i'm in a rush and they've got like you know for like places you Things can drive for you. The places you can drive through the damn uh drive through and get food, that's one of the very few places you can go and they've got something besides meat. So I uh be I so saw I like I don't want to shout out this horrible corporation. I know they suck, but <laughs> it just like I was like, how did I miss that too? Because I'm like always like uh being like an ironic fan of Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now there's been a lot of study on which animals can entrain to a beat or move in time with a beat. And there are very few that can actually. Uh, humans, even people who haven't studied music are typically far better at it than most animals. Yeah. And the reasons for that seem to relate to our very early uh, social uh, uh, interactions, as well as things like uh, building um, stone tools. You know, they were rhythmical chipping away rock on rock and i joke about it being the original rock music which is <laughs> i couldn't help myself but but there's this saying in neuroscience um neurons that fire together meaning activate together start to wire together they start to connect so there's this thinking it took a lot of hours to learn how to chip a stone tool and this this ability would have been um mimicked early on by one one group teaching another group or one group 
observing other groups doing it and then starting to do it in time and this feeling of moving and the movement chain that the physiology needed to do that would have made it a regular movement and the sound you hear as the rock is chipping rock would be wiring together your ability to hear that sound and feel your body moving together that's one that's one theory um another theory is is bipedalism so walking on two feet we're, oh, we're yeah. the we're the the primates that do that and yeah. we've been walking on two feet or at least our our human ancestors have been walking on on two feet for 3.8 million years and um in the the wet volcanic ash in in Tanzania they showed that not only were early human ancestors walking on two feet they were stepping into the footsteps of each others which which apes can't do it, it it's a form of of um matching a beat, a, a physical beat of another. You have to adjust your body, your yeah. your um your your body ergonomics, your gait, your walking speed to entrain with the beat of another. It's again another theory, but there's this this something is different about humans, and and the differences are far beat before we had actual music. Yeah, no, I get the like the walking, like the plop plop plop. Yeah, plop it, like in and the you- mud. Yeah, but, exactly. But, that would have also wired the hearing neurons and the the physiology, you know, of 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 the human uh, or the early human, I should say. So, I mean, you think, well, how is that music? But it's the building blocks. It's the ability to hear uh, re- regular rhythms and entrain to regular regular rhythms. And the same with with pitch perception, zeroing in on the fundamental and hearing distinct pitch, pitches. And um, another interesting thing is that. They've shown, and this is relevant to your new child, that your child, while napping, if someone put electrodes, which are non-invasive, they just kind of stuck them on the scalp of your child. Um, If your child were listening to whatever music you had playing, their brain would show uh, responses to the steady rhythmic pulse in the music. And this has not been shown in baby macaques, which are a type of monkey. They they tried to replicate this e- experiment in macaques, and they did not show that regular um, uh, response to the beat. So that the, the the brain is picking up the beat, and they even took out the downbeats uh, to see what happened there. And the 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 baby's um, brain would show that it knew where that downbeat was supposed to be because it would anticipate that there should be a beat there, which is amazing. That's a newborn baby. Yeah. Cause I think, didn't you say something about too, like, uh, there was some research back in the day where they were trying to say that language was one of the precursors to music, but what you just said kind of disproved that because babies don't start to develop linguistic. They don't, they're not putting words together or or even trying to uh, become linguistic until like, what is it, like six weeks or six months, some, some shit like that. And like, uh, but the music is instantaneous. Music's brand, first day you're born, you can hear music. Is that? Yes. And there's actually even evidence that um, babies remember the music they heard in the womb. They respond like, so a few weeks after birth, they will respond differently in terms of heart rate and movement. Um, they'll respond differently to music they heard in the womb versus music they didn't hear in the the womb. And that's been quite well documented. Uh, However, gotta say, it won't make them smarter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the music cognition scientists said, it's the myth that refuses to die. There is no evidence that listening to Mozart while 
to while they're in their womb makes babies smarty martyr or any other kind of music the only thing it does is it it makes that music familiar to them and perhaps you know more enjoyable down down the road so if you want your your baby to be really into grunge you know <laughs> starting in the womb might be the way to, to go you know yeah that's funny too because i named my my kid kurt okay uh, not not after, after kurt cobain Kobe? but well you no. know just he's, he's named after the great american novelist uh kurt vonnegut but great. then secondarily uh kurt cobain and then uh a tertiary naming after uh nightcrawler from the x-men which was nice kurt uh Wagner. But I wanted to uh, jump back one second to right before you did um, when you're talking about like the paleo uh, musicologist talking about uh, steps and the rhythm of steps kind of being a building block. But you talked about tool making yeah, and you're know, like chipping at the tool and then people, would, I guess, would like mimic and then get into sync like chip, chip, chip. And I think you can see evidence of that now, like if you like just recall, like, you know, being in school. And some kids got a pen, like tap at a pencil on the, yeah. on like on the desk and it yeah. makes you want to tap a pencil on the desk or, you know, or do, you know, and like, I've been in situations like in classrooms, you know, like in, you know, fourth grade or whatever, like, it's like tap, 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 you know, and then like everyone's kind of getting into it till the teacher comes in and tells you to stop. So, <laughs> well, you know, there's something to that and, and that goes even farther and it's, it's pretty wild. Like I have to say, I enjoyed having that much time to really drill into the research uh, that's been done on music cognition because there were so many things I wish I'd known way earlier in my life. And one of them that's super cool is that our brainstem, which is one of the older structures in the brain, the neurons in the brainstem tend to start firing in synchrony with the beat, which is cool because that can have an effect on our breathing and our heart rate. So actual physiological changes in response to rhythm, which is one of the reasons why exercising to music is helpful. Um, so that's one side. But another side is that at this incredible lab at McMaster University, it's set up like a regular concert hall. There's a stage, there are seats, there, you know, it looks just like your standard 100 seat concert hall, but they have all kinds of high tech equipment that allows them to see what's happening in the audience members' brains and in the brains of the musician when, when a performance is happening. And so they put caps full of electrodes on all, all the audience members' heads oh, and cool. they showed, yeah. And, and they, I even have a photo of this and, uh, they showed that, and you can probably find videos online too, they showed that the audience members' brainwaves began to match in, in this in the oscillations, the beat on the stage. And they showed also that the more this happened, the more pleasure people felt in the performance and the more feeling of social connection they felt with each other, total strangers. So there's something about experiencing music together that makes people feel a sense of warm fuzzies or or connection. And it's why we go to stadiums to hear rock shows, because we can hear the same music at home with less distraction and less, you know, background noise and less jostling. But we like that feeling of connecting to the music and where it literally puts us on the same wavelength, which sounds flaky and weird, but it's true at a brainwave level, we're starting to synchronize. 
And music isn't the only thing that makes brain synchrony. Uh, there are other things that can do that, but it's so embedded with pleasure too in our brain that it, it's a pleasurable way to be on the same wavelength. And, and it also doesn't involve talking. And we know right now with the political you know, debates and the the divisions that talking is a minefield. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so many things that can make people stop and get offended or, or, uh, or uh, make the conversation break down. Whereas music is a way to be together with people we might not necessarily want to be with, together with normally, or that we might yeah. judge, or we might feel uncomfortable with it. It, it, it is, is a, a social glue. And that is also believed to be one of its roles in evolution. So I talk about these ice age caves in Germany, in the Schwabian Alps, and they found flutes made out of mammoth bone and vulture bone. And these flutes are at least 40,000 years old, maybe older. And the, the archaeologists said the location where they were found suggests that these weren't just occasional playthings, that that they were the flutes were being played regularly and and the hypothesis is that music made being in small groups more bearable you're you're huddled in the cave to, to oh, yeah. weather the storm there are neanderthals still out there that want to kill you uh there's safety in numbers but we have to find a way to get along when we're stuck in these close quarters and music chilled people out and and the idea is that it played a role in our survival by drawing us together, making life in small groups bearable, it might have played a role along with food, shelter, etc. in survival, which I find fascinating. And those were clearly not the first instruments because they were way too sophisticated. On, on the vulture bone, bone flute, you can even play the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> That's yeah. how sophisticated oh, they cool. were. So yeah, so actual first instruments would have been far older than 40,000 40, plus years ago. So there's a there's a, a social component to music that seems to be really helpful for our species. Yeah, and I like you're just saying, you know, like like a stadium show, and everybody's there, like they're all grooving together, and and it's we're like, bobbing our heads yeah. together, and, you know, right? I, I know exactly what that feels like the the magic of being in a big group at a at a good show, you know. Yeah. Uh, but also something that like for I have man, it's been a long time since I've been in a mosh pit, but like I think that you could apply that to that as well. Is that you know, especially like when you're like young and you got a lot of uh, energy that doesn't have a place to go, that might be like some of its anger or whatever it might be, but you're at, you know, at a show and you're in a mosh pit, which is a relatively safe place to be. I know it's not always, but you know, and everybody just run around, just kind of bashing into each other. And that's just, I think another way of like, you could say like, that's another form of that. Like everybody's like on the same wavelength groove and we're like, all right, we're going to uh, like do play violence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes there's almost a, a, a group catharsis that happens too, yeah. you know, at the climax of the show. And uh, my only, I wasn't much of a mosher, but I did mosh once. <laughs> Is mosh a verb? Can I mosh? Yeah, you can mosh. Okay. I, I did uh, mosh once. At, the specials came to town. Oh, cool. I don't know if you remember the specials. And yeah. so I got to see them live at a really awesome venue that is no longer. And it was awesome partly because it was small and intimate and cool it's actually where the film Roxanne was was uh filmed um one of one of the scenes with Steve Martin yeah um anyway 
it was a totally joyful mosh with the specials that night. And, uh, and that feeling of just bumping around as long as you're not <laughs> maimed yeah. by the end of the night, <laughs> it can be really fun. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had the wind knocked out of me. I got punched in the face, you know, but like, but hey. it, and I know it's, but you know, you can get hurt at any kind of concert. So whatever. Um, you know what? I'm actually speaking quick, very quick tangent to concert stuff. And it's just this. You said you went to a Beastie Boys show where yeah. they performed the entire set on a trampoline. Uh-huh. What I didn't understand or I found hard to believe, you're you're telling me that like the whole set, they were on a trampoline and they were jumping the whole time. And I can't made... remember if all of them were jumping or just okay. the main guy. It's possible they took turns, but it was okay. outside. Um, it was at uh, Lollapalooza in Montreal. And um, yeah. The lead singer was was on the trampoline singing while while jumping. I was gonna say, I had no idea those guys had that kind of cardio ability to be able like just rapping a Beastie Boys song in general seems like it'd be like hard to keep your breath and then jumping on a trampoline. I don't, when you said that, I was like, what do you mean? So. It, was, it was impressive. Like yeah. I remembered it years later, and it definitely happened. Whether it was the entire, I think it was a short set for one thing, because yeah. there were lots of bands playing at the same time. The Smashing yeah. Pumpkins were there too. It was a whole thing. Yeah, they played basketball. I mean, they, they all probably had really good uh, cardio strength. Yeah, um, <laughs> it did uh, happen though. Trust me, it did. I was there. You can probably dig up photos somewhere online. I don't know. So I think so. We we established that. Playing music for a baby is not going to make the baby smarter or like necessarily change their uh, like the the shape of their brain to make them a a musical genius. But here's a question. Uh (laughs) Oh, wait, 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 wait. Playing. Yeah. Playing. uh, Playing it. Yes. uh, Playing an instrument does result in structural changes in the brain that last for life. That was my question. My question was, uh, uh, what what are some of the effects that playing an instrument has on a musician? Well, it it would have to be fairly intensive musical activity. So I'm not going to say classical training necessarily, because if you're a drummer, a baby drummer, you know, in 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 Africa, parts of Africa, kids start drumming at two. If yeah. they're drumming every day, something's happening in their brain for sure. And what is happening for sure in in um, musicians who start. The window appears to be between the ages of seven and nine. So you have this developmental window. If you do a lot of music playing, not listening, but listening probably does things too, but the dramatic changes seem to be in the playing, the physical act of playing music. Um, If you do a lot of that before the ages of seven to nine, so you'd have to start before that window, there are lasting structural changes in the brain. And by that, I mean more neurons, more white matter, more gray matter in specific areas. And one area is the corpus callosum, Mm -hmm. which is the structure that that separates the right lobe of the brain and the left lobe of the brain. And it allows for communication between those lobes, allows for uh, fast communication. And musicians have a thicker corpus callosum because they they need the ability for very speedy and drummers have especially thick cor- corpus callosum uh, among the musicians and so that's kind of cool and that's why, and that's why they think they're better than everybody uh maybe they think, <laughs> i've got a meaty corpus callosum i'm the yeah 
Um, so a man <laughs> or the woman or the the non-binary drummer. Um, uh, so there you go. Uh, that's then there are other areas that show um, thicker gray matter, and some would be the auditory processing areas, the motor areas. It's a very complex thing to play music. You're you're having to remember things. You're having to sometimes you're reading th- symbols on a page and trying to. Uh, recreate those symbols musically in the moment. Sometimes you're 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 in training with other people musically. Uh, you've got all the physical coordination of the instrument. You've got the emotional aspects of the the music that you're playing. You've got the memory. I mean, it goes on and on. It, there, there's so much going on when you're playing an instrument. So of course, it does affect the brain in that way. Um, the reason I don't want to get into too much here, but it's synaptic pruning. We we tend our brains tend to prune off. Uh, uh, functions that we don't use. So if you don't use those functions by the age of seven or nine, you can still become a a really good musician. You can even become a professional musician, but you're not going to show the same uh, brain signature of a a musician as you do if you start younger. And like I said, it's not last call for a musician, but it might be last call for that brain pattern. And it's such a, a, an amazing thing. I I actually got this from Oliver Sacks because he says this in his book, Musicophilia, which is also a wonderful book. Um, He said, uh, an an anatomist would not be able to recognize the brain of a mathematician, an architect, a visual artist, but they could identify the the brain of a musician without a moment's hesitation because that, that pattern is so clear and obvious and consistent. That's crazy. Yeah. Because you would think that like some of those other things would also have some kind of like physiological effect, like Things How many architects start doing architecture at five, six? Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, I did Legos. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. You, you got me there. But um, but the hours that you spend already at a young age um, doing math problems, for instance. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And math problems are more cerebral. They don't tend to involve physical motion and, 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 and motor motion and emotion and yeah it's it's uh it could be that other activities if if we did them as much time before that window would show a pattern and maybe they haven't looked enough for other pursuits but that's what we have so far yeah hey do you mind if i uh i share a gripe that i have that i think would resonate with a lot of people go for it (laughs) um so my gripe is about musicals well or technically uh the lack thereof um like back in the 1940s uh you might spend like a hard day fighting adolf hitler but later when you went to the movies you'd get to see a damn musical you know what i mean and nowadays there's like one musical a year maybe uh so i guess my question is uh do i have a valid gripe and also do you think bringing back musicals uh, is the most obvious step toward building a utopian society? That's my two-part <laughs> two question for my gripe. Oh, gosh. I don't think I'm the authority to ask about that. <laughs> um, I think that the type of performances that involve audience members, that is where I would go. And I'll tell you this very cool thing that happened yeah. in Vancouver two weeks ago. And I'm I I posted it 
on Instagram. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was called Disco Inferno. And it was um, a musical that was set in a 1970s disco like Studio 54 in New York, but it was audience participation. So you get there and there's this massive tickle trunk full of like sparklies and wide leg pants and lurid clothing. And so the audience, there was no person there who looked like I have a white t-shirt and jeans on. Everybody uh, I mean, it wasn't rec- it wasn't required that you be in in period costume, but everybody wanted to be. Yeah. And and they had a a disco D two, which was an R two D two that had a, a disco ball on its head, and it was robotically serving drinks and talking to the people. They had one of those dance floors that light up when you know the, with the colorful squares that yes, light I up. I love those. You- I love those. <laughs> they had one of those. They had um, it, it, it. So they had the, all the musical elements. There was a dance routine, but they also, as part of the show, they taught the audience uh, a disco moves, a series nice. of a disco choreography. And so you at at different points in the show, they they'd say, "Oh, everyone up now! We're gonna dance! We're gonna get down!" You know. And so the audience all would stand up and do do the disco choreography that we were taught at the beginning of the the night and then sing along. And then we're back at our seats and watching them do a number. And it was so joyful. It was held over. It was this cool underground thing. And um, everybody wanted more of that. So uh, in terms of changing the world musically, having a lot more engagement participation is where I would go because it's This is very much a Western European, North American thing. People saying, I'm not musical. I love music. I I can't hold a beat to save my life. I can't sing. You don't see that in other parts of the world. Uh, Some cultures don't even have a word for musician or singer because everybody does it. You know, everybody claps along or, or yodels along or dances along or picks up an instrument and rattles it or, you know, sings around the table. Or even if you don't have the best voice, people... There, no one looks at them funny, for one thing. There's less judgment. Yeah. Uh, we're not being compared with, they're not being compared with the that week's American Idol star <laughs> just for yeah. opening yeah. their mouths, you know? So there's this real harsh standard thing that happens in our culture and um, judgment and then messages super early telling a child in class not to sing at the 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 school pageant because you can't sing and kids are being told that at five six you know yeah. their their voices their their whole apparatus is still forming and then that becomes a, a self-concept for life and that's so, like absurd i mean like like tom waits like his voice is like crazy. or leonard cohen yeah or, yeah or leonard cohen that's yeah like same uh same kind of like style of like oh I sing like this and those guys are so that's dope. a grover it's... voice <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my uh tom waits is kind of a grover yeah. but uh yeah like some of the dopest musicians in the world beloved you know the world over you know he's big in japan even and like yeah I'm just, that's just one of his uh songs but <laughs> uh i was just gonna say like you know if tom waits can make it quit telling kids they got a bad voice that's insane it is oh, it who's is that guy? And... Fucking, uh, bob dylan like <laughs> he's like one of the, yeah. the biggest musicians to have ever lived and that guy has like objectively a bad singing voice <laughs> <laughs> well and so when you back to your question about musicals i think that uh helping people feel permission to express themselves musically and if a musical helps people do that i'm all for it 
I'm all for, you know, uh, campfire sing-alongs and it, all of those things where they're easy entry points, because right now we're in a place where people feel shy to even sing happy birthday. Yeah. And so in terms of skills getting rusty, um, you'll see in the book, there's a whole historical reason for that, that, that it happened in Western societies that I don't want to get into here because it's, you know, what the part I'm talking about, it's, it's complicated. It happened the early, I mean, before even the middle ages that there was this clampdown on music in, yeah. in Western Europe. So we have that influence. We have the formal music training. We have the like blood sport of, of uh, singing, comp competitive singing online and show, yeah. or, sorry, uh, on, on screen and shows like the voice and American idol where yeah. people are like humiliated publicly if they're not perfect. Um, uh, the standards are so high and also we're doing a lot of passive listening and and um people aren't playing music with their parents very much anymore there's less of, of all of that musical engagement we don't couples dance anymore i mean you yeah. know it, it's yes, really we, we've and, and it's gotten less and less even than it was 50 years ago so if they're wait like choir 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 have you heard of that no Oh, it's this movement in Toronto that's spreading and it and it's again, it's like spontaneous. Uh the performers come and get the whole audience being part of the show as the choir. Anything like that that kind of makes people feel like this is so ridiculous and silly, I'm gonna join in and and no one's gonna care how I sound. Karaoke's good too, that way, right? But again, yeah. in our in our culture, you have to be a really good karaoke singer if you're gonna you dare get up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm going to introduce a new theory right now. I'm not going to back it up with anything uh, other than I this I now believe this is uh, like because you were bringing up the, the Middle Ages uh, just a few moments ago. I think that the reason the Vikings were able to go down, you know, to England and uh, like Paris and just kick everybody's asses is because even though like especially the French had far superior uh like uh, weapons tech, you know, they had crossbows, they had all kinds of stuff. The Vikings had like axes or like hatchets and like wooden shields, but they went over there uh, out outnumbered and just overwhelmed their defenses because they sang the whole, they would get on their boats and they would sing songs and they'd be like, they? you know, yeah, like, yo, ho, we're Vikings. And I kind think of I like believe pirates that's too. Yeah, they're like pirates. Well, that's why <laughs> yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. <laughs> that's why that's why pirates used to be able to defeat yeah. uh, actual military ships because they were singing and singing causes unity, and then you fight as a unit. And so that's my theory about the Vikings was that the power of song is how they were able to easily vanquish uh, the British and the French during that time well, period. <laughs> There's, I mean, there actually is some science. It sounds like, you know, a crazy theory that you're presenting, but there is some science in the sense that um, large groups of, of singers uh, show when they sing together, oxytocin increases. And we know what oxytocin is. It's, it's the bonding hormone. It's the, the hormone, it's a, it's a brain chemical and hormone. It's, so it comes in two forms. And it makes us feel more socially connected and more uh, trusting of each other and more empathic. It can also um, create in-groups and out-groups. So um, oxytocin, they, they've shown it's not just the love drug. It also can reinforce bonds to make you hate the outsiders. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah it's a more <laughs> complex than originally believed, like most things in science. But but there is, like I said, this surge in, in oxytocin that happens when people sing together. I was going to actually, so this is, I'm jumping ahead on like in my notes here of like things that I wanted to bring up. But when you said 
it can create an out group. Uh, we were talking like we haven't even really talked that much about like music therapy type stuff where it's uh, it's a healing element. But you pose the question: Can music be harmful? And so now that's my question: Can can you music be uh, used for the dark side? Can it be used to harm? Well, absolutely. And there are these these uh, historical examples and fairly recent examples that I talk about in that uh, chapter, which I called bad vibrations, yeah. <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> so we know that at Guantanamo Bay, music was used as torture for yeah. uh, for prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. And um, and uh, used... Tom Morello was outraged about that because they used uh they used Rage Against the Machine and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine was like, I feel like I think he was absolutely infuriated that he would they would use his music in that way. But I'm sorry, I didn't and, interrupt you. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. Um, but you think, oh well, how bad could that be? Well, if it's true that our brains entrain to music, um, so our brain waves start to synchronize with the music, and you can't make it stop. And that's first of all, it's played at full blast. So it's damaging to your ear at that uh physically damaging to your ear at that volume yeah. then it, it it's repetitive I mean, anyone who's had an earworm knows how annoying that is but in this case it's actually playing all the time it's not just playing in your head it's literally playing all the time typically it was done with the lights on so you've got sleep deprivation on top of it so you've got this repetitive loud banging sound happening in your head that you cannot escape and uh, when you look at some of the footage of people who have who have been released from facilities like that where music was used as torture, sometimes they say it was worse than the physical torture because that you knew would end. Um, yeah. They they would talk about with physical torture, they just go inside of their head and kind of de disassociate from their bodies and get through it and then be, you know, able to. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't enjoyable. I'm sure it yeah. was still extremely difficult. But with the music, it's actually penetrating your mind and your brain in a way that you cannot escape. And and people said it was horrific. And also, um, sometimes the music was chosen that would violate the religious beliefs of, of the prisoners. And so on top of it, they were feeling that they were sinning against their God by even hearing it at all. So... Um, that's one way in which music can be harmful. I think I've shown in my own story, which I, I've only just glossed over today in our chat because we don't have a lot of time, but I've shown in my own life that physically and emotionally, psychologically, music was not necessarily healing for me in the way that it was approached. Yeah. Um, and that's something I had to repattern in my more recent musical activities. And then there's also the... Uh, so the the um, the social bonding aspect of it can be used for evil as well. And I used a whole um, section on Hitler and, and, you know, the Nazis, how they very in very calculated ways used music to win the hearts of Germans and to rally against um, the people they saw as inferior. Um, Hitler used Wagner's music for this. Um, he, he used music as torture in the death camps. And um, also they leveraged the power of the radio. Radio was brand new, pretty much. It was the early days of radio anyway. And the Nazi regime mass produced cheap radios so that the radio ownership went from a fraction of Germans to like 
more than to the by the end of the war, the majority of of Germans had radios and they used sanitized Nazi music played all the time. So they used it as propaganda, verbal, you know, messaging, but also music that would kind of help people feel like we're in this together. We're we're real Germans. We're listening yeah. to good German folk songs. Um, we're not listening to that evil jazz, that evil and it, like Jewish composers music was banned and you weren't allowed to listen to foreign radio. It was yeah. it was so um it was used as a propaganda tool, music. And and as we said, it has this bonding uh and you can see that in some of the the um the skinhead um neo-Nazi groups use music to incite hate too. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the ways that music can actually be a tool for evil. I can't help but think of the scene from Apocalypse Now when yeah. the uh, air cavalry is flying in, uh, playing Flight of the Valkyries uh, through the, the stereo systems to yeah. in instill fear in the uh, soldiers on the ground. And also create a sense of triumph and superiority in yeah. the people gunning them down. Yeah. But yeah, probably one, probably one of the most iconic scenes in any movie ever. It's just, and it is, you know, like what it, it is an evil way to make an evil way to use mu music, but also such a, a display of the power of music. I mean, and that particular piece was one of Hitler's favorite pieces of music, and he was gifted the original Wagner score of the Flight of the Valkyries, which is the name of that that um piece yeah and he was gifted with the original score by the uh, the wagner family family and he had them clutched with him in the bunker where he shot himself those scores scores were in that bunker with him that's how precious they were to him yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wonder how wagner would have felt about how his music has been used because i'm sure you're aware that um that uh private military group and you that's fighting in ukraine the wagner group they're named after Wagner. Like that's because I, I assume because they have an affinity for Hitler and so forth, but. Well, wild, I can't comment. Shit, <laughs> yeah. I can't comment on how we would have felt about the use of his music in, in the second world war, but he did write a pretty uh, damning essay in the 19th century that showed, I mean, it's musicologists dispute and debate this to the nth degree, but, but, it has been interpreted as a highly anti-Semitic essay, oh, Wagner's really? essay. Oh, yeah. Right. So <laughs> it, it, there's there's there are signs of anti-Semitism in his writings that um, some people believe explain why Hitler adopted the music so strongly. Okay, well that's really interesting to learn because I had a. This is this is not music related. This is about uh, Nietzsche or Nietzsche, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, that he was actually not. Uh, pro-Nazi, but his because of the timing of his death, his sister was able to kind of gift his like philosophy to the the Nazi regime, and so he ended up getting heavily affiliated, or his philosophy ended up being heavily affiliated with the Nazis. Whereas a lot of people believe he would have, had he been alive, would have been very very against it. Mm -hmm. Who's to say? <laughs> um, man, I feel like that was a little bit of a tangent. So I have another question. Sure. About about music, though. Uh, let's say hypothetically, I choose to get older. Uh, what are some of the uh, benefits on aging? Maybe like any of the health benefits that music might have on aging. Sure, I I have a chapter, as you know, called "The Beat Goes On." Yeah, and um, 
there again, there are quite a few things I could mention. I'll try and keep it short. There's some, uh, and I want to be careful about saying this, there's some evidence, but I think we need a lot more drilling down on the research. Um, there's some evidence that if you have a lot of music making and music training in your life, you might preserve cognition uh, a little longer than other people who don't have that background. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be, the effect seems to be a little bit similar to bilingualism. So you, I don't know if you're aware of the research, people who learn a, uh, a second language seem to get dementia a little later than other people would. Okay. Um, uh, so there seems to be perhaps, and I'm going to say very much perhaps a protective effect to playing an instrument oh, that comes with playing an instrument. So that's one thing, but it's early days research. We have to be careful with it. Um, there was research that was done with re retirees and they, they divided them into two groups and none of them had ever played the piano before, or had intensive music training. And uh, these people were between the ages of, I think, 65 and 80. And half of the group took piano lessons for six months. And they they practiced three times a week and had the one-hour lesson. And the other half were on the wait list for the lessons. And they were, of course, matched in all the ways that researchers try to do. And uh, by the end of the six months, these retirees who were taking piano lessons did slightly better on short-term memory tests than the people who didn't take the piano lessons, which is interesting, right? Yeah. Um, because we all want to preserve our, our thinking abilities and, uh, and our um, executive functioning. It's possible, and we don't know, maybe if they'd done some, some other activity, not music-related, but that was new to them and challenging their brain, maybe they would show similar gains. We They didn't compare it to other types of music, uh, other types of activities. Yeah. But there does seem to be there have been some comparative um, studies done elsewhere, and there does to seem to be something about music that makes it uh, good for pre preserving cognition, but I don't want to say we know for sure yet because we really don't. Uh, one thing we do know is that loneliness is a, a health crisis in North America. Yeah, and sure. it's been, yeah, you've probably heard that it's been compared. Actually, it was the former, I think it was the former U.S. Surgeon General uh, said that loneliness is comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of its negative health effects. And I read loneliness, that recently, actually. Yeah, yeah. Loneliness, I believe, doubles your chances of dementia. So there are changes that happen in the brain when we're socially isolated that increase our risk for dementia quite a lot. And because music is has a social bonding, social glue aspect to it, it can combat feelings of loneliness very quickly. And that's even been studied. So they they took, uh, again, uh, retirees in this was in, um, it was, an, I think it was a study from the University of Oxford. And they enrolled them in different types of activities. So some did, I think, creative, creative writing, some did a craft, uh, they were group uh, courses, right? So a creative writing course, a crafting course, group singing, etc. The, all By the end of seven months, all of the groups had gotten to know each other and seemed to be, you know, making some social connections. But the singing group felt connected to each other after just one month. And so the feeling was that or in the by the researchers was that music broke the ice faster. It made people feel connected and comfortable and a sense of belonging quicker than the other options available to retirees in that study. So that's kind of interesting. And then there have also been work, uh, there's been work done with choirs showing that 
that the feelings of social isolation uh, fell away uh, quickly for people. Um, of course, I think you have to have uh, the comfort to sing, the comfort level in singing. So it's another reason to get over your hangups earlier yeah. in life so that it's like, okay, <laughs> I've never sung before and I'm 70, I'm terrified. It doesn't speak to me, you know? Um, the other thing that music is great for when we're older is, um, I don't know if you've heard of the incredible benefits of dancing for people with Parkinson's. I have not. There are astounding uh, videos you can find on on YouTube showing how someone's walking very in a very jerky fashion and having problems with Parkinson's. And then they're in a dance class and they can fluidly move. And one thing we know is that um, Parkinson's involves a drop in dopamine. It, it actually, uh, dopamine is in, important for smooth mo uh, motor movements as well as uh, pleasure and other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there something about the rhythm in the rhythm in dancing and the dopamine and all of the package that music offers uh does seem to improve symptoms in parkinson's it does not cure the disease it doesn't halt the progression of disease but it, it helps people feel better and move more fluidly for longer and they even did a study showing that in toronto that was a three and a half year long study they showed that the people who had the dance lessons in parkinson's didn't show the, as quick a progression in the disease as those who weren't dancing. So that's amazing. And then, yeah. of course, once you have dementia, which my parents now have, um, it it truly does improve quality of life. It, it it improves mood in people with dementia, and it does bring back memories. It um, one researcher told me music is very resistant to forgetting. Um, so we can forget many things and it's partly because it taps into many different types of memory that we have. So we yeah. have emotional memory, we have motor memory, we have short-term memory, long-term memory. Music recruits many different types of memory at the same time. And so even if you're kind of low on one type of memory, it'll recruit other types and, and pull them along. And so, you know, you've probably seen the videos too of people who can barely speak and, and look like they're, they're detached from their surroundings and some suddenly they light up when they hear a familiar song and they're yeah. suddenly singing along and their eyes are shining and there you can see joy in the face of someone who's very far along in, in dementia and it's profound and they've even found that in in nursing homes it can lower the need for certain medications to have personal uh, music playlists so it that is pretty remarkable that's amazing yeah all right so i just want to say uh you heard it here first guys if you think you're too cool to dance or too cool to, to be singing maybe think twice about that because it's gonna not only is it awesome and you're not too cool to do it but also it can provide you with a longer more fulfilling life uh <laughs> well it's a, it's preparing uh, for the future you right yeah i yeah. mean <laughs> care about the future you you know you know what? i i have a plan do you want to hear my plan yeah. Uh, when, for when I'm okay. So when I get to be a very old man, I'm going to join a barbershop quartet. Awesome. Wait, are you a tenor or a bass? I don't know. I have never uh, thought about joining it until now. And okay. then uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, so I'm going to get into a quartet and then we're going to beef with other uh, barbershop quartets of old men awesome. and then occasionally go and get in like dance fights with them. So, so battle of the barbershop quartet. <laughs> yeah. Got it. I'll be Love like, it. We'll, we'll be the like, the the fifth avenue uh you know bruisers or something and we'll go and like 
find the the jaybirds and be the like you're on our, yeah like, you're, you're on our turf and then we'll sing fight and fight fight or, you know like i think it'll keep us love young. It. <laughs> it's, it's my plan to stay young i love uh, it adriana i have to tell you we are getting dangerously close to the lightning round now i don't okay. know if you know how the lightning round works on this podcast but it's how no. we finish every episode basically sometimes i forget but almost never and uh i ask you a bunch of questions super fast don't take any time to think just gut okay. reaction Got uh it. it's not cerebral um i rarely write these anymore this is written by co-producer colleen so i have no idea what i'm about to read you but i know it's a series <laughs> of questions and you have to answer them as fast as you can <laughs> i'll try i'm okay. a perfectionist so it's hard but i'll try Ooh, you got uh, a lightning round grab bag so sometimes these are these come in many different forms this one is just going to be a bunch of random stuff so uh that should be pretty easy well no looks like it starts off really hard never mind all right are you ready <laughs> <laughs> i have a feeling you're gonna win okay <laughs> all right Pick one. The other one gets wiped from existence. Beethoven or the Beatles? I have to say Beatles. Me too. I, I mean, I should say <laughs> Beethoven, but I'm taking Beatles. Nah, anybody can. Uh, never mind. I'm not going to. I'm going to piss off like 10,000 people right now. No, Beethoven stays. Beatles go. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, who is better? Film composers edition. Uh, John Williams just for a refresher, he did like Harry Potter, Star Wars, shit like that. Or Danny Elfman. I'm sorry, what did Danny Elfman do? What did Danny Elfman do? Uh, the Simpsons, Nightmare Before Christmas. Okay. Um, I'll probably take John Williams. Sorry. Okay. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's personal taste, right? Our roads diverge there. I take Danny Elfman, but that's okay. It's not about okay. me. It's about you. Uh, which instrument would represent you in an opera slash ballet slash musical, musical, et cetera? Uh, the piccolo, the French horn, the oboe, or timpani? Oboe. Good choice. <laughs> I lived with an oboist in Cleveland, so uh, it was, I heard that sound a lot. It's 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 a, a an unsung instrument. People should listen to more oboe. The bassoon is awesome, too. If you'd had bassoon on the list, I would have taken bassoon. I think I'm going to go with oboe as well. Uh, okay. sla slash bassoon but it's not on the list uh okay you have to wake up to one of these songs every day for the rest of your life oh, happy <laughs> happy by pharrell or don't cry for me argentina by madonna oh no from evita neither well yeah but you gotta pick one. Oh shit <laughs> um <laughs> i guess happy but i don't really know. oh my god uh, i think i think i would the second day i would be going well else. Yeah, I think they would both drive me nuts. Yeah, you're right. Okay, happy it is. I'm going to go for That's Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. That's an unfair question. <laughs> Truly unfair question. I'm sorry. Um, well, I told you I didn't write these. Okay. okay. Um, who, uh, who currently making music would you call a musical genius? So someone alive. Oh, wow. Oh, God. Pharrell. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, no, I I cannot answer that question. I mean, there's so many. Oh, you just I mean, just name one person. Just it's just it's just one shout out. Ah, uh, it won't hurt anybody's feelings. I promise. I I would probably name people whose names I don't know. I mean, there there I've seen incredible musicians in Zimbabwe and and places there and. Uh, in 
in Cuba and Brazil, et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't want to choose. I don't want to anoint a musical genius. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, push back on the question. (laughs) Fair enough. Actually, I forgot to mention at the very beginning, any question you don't want to answer, you can actually just say no. So you could have just said no to the one before that. too. (laughs) Well, that was my way of saying no in a very Canadian way. (laughs) I forgot how, how like uber polite you are. Okay. (laughs) Well, I, this is, it's almost, the torture is almost over. This is the last one. Uh, who is, <laughs> who is the most overrated classical music composer and why? Oh, um, not a fan of Philip Glass. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. Not a fan. There were, there were other, um, minimalist composers whose work I preferred, but Philip Glass made me want to take a, you know, an ice pick and jam it in my eye repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one so, thing, man, after the things I've learned about Wagner on this particular uh, podcast, I'm not so sure about him anymore either. So, Well, he's a tough one because I have to admit, I I was horrified when I drilled down into some of the murky, dark uh, um, associations with his music, but I've played his music and it is also tremendous and powerful, often beautiful and remarkable. So that's the the sticky thing is that you have this evil embedded with pleasure and and yeah. wonder you know um but yeah and philip glass i mean i respect him uh i i understand what other people like him i just don't personally like that music yeah no doubt well guess what ding 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 you're the winner of the lightning round <laughs> <laughs> uh but i do have one last question for you Audrey, and it's the it's the most important question of the day okay uh, where can people uh, find you, check you out, read your book and everything Adriana Barton? Okay. Well, thanks for asking that question, Doug. <laughs> uh, probably the one-stop shop would be my website, although I don't sell the book myself. Um, the book is available wherever books are sold. However, the hardcover is in very short supply. It was just uh, released in October and it's my publisher's out of stock. And so there's still stock on Amazon, I believe. Um, and some indie stores still have copies if you search around, but the paperback's coming in the summer and that will flood the market with more copies. It's actually a good thing to be out of stock, even though yeah, it's yeah, made it a yeah. little less available, but certainly Amazon has it. Um, my book is available as an audiobook, And so I had a, uh, I had to audition to narrate my own book. Oh, and, yeah. Well, that uh, makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because it was done by a professional production company. And and uh, I, I unfortunately, I was going away for the summer to Europe. And so I, I had like two weeks to narrate it, crash course in narrating. And it was it was really cool. I really enjoyed it. But uh, so there is the audiobook version and I'm narrating and for better or for worse. And there is a, an e-copy, uh, so a Kindle version too, um, which all of that's on Amazon. Uh, my my website is adrianabarton.com. So A-D-R-I-A-N-A, Barton, B-A-R-T-O-N. And of course, uh, .com. I'm on Instagram, uh, adrianabarton underscore author. I'm on Twitter, uh, Adriana Barton, and uh, Facebook as well. So all of those places. Also, guys, if you follow me, like I'll, I'll tag Adriana like in literally everything uh, coming up when this comes out. And... Also, what you just said about audiobook, um, obviously, I, I'm a, I prefer to read books on paper, but I like audiobooks too. And I was thinking, 
your book in particular, what's something nice about that is you could have your headphones on and like I uh, experienced wanting to uh, switch over to music every so often when I was inspired to do so. It'd be a really easy transition because you already got your headphones in and just go like, okay, it's time to like listen to a couple tunes and then come and then return to the book. If you so choose to read it that way, I'm not I suggesting can... that's the way to read it, but. Uh, I'll add two little things if you if that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One is that um, the audiobook, the one downside with it is that you don't get all the source notes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you noticed that. Um, I mean, I fact checked everything and I backed up everything, even a lot of things about my own life. I I rigorously sourced and researched and cited interviews for, did that really happen? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was 12, did that, oh yeah, yeah, there's a news article saying that happened. So I, in the book there, um, I, I think it's like 50 pages of notes where all the research, where you can find more about things, uh, you know, citations and, and books mentioned and that kind of thing. And a lot of reviewers of my book have said they've gone on to read other things and read the studies and that kind of thing. So that's yeah. what you get from the paper version that you don't get in the audiobook. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's sort of coming, I don't know if you know the author, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, a famous I'm, book on, on trauma. I'm unfamiliar. Okay. Well, he's he's um, invited me to be a keynote speaker in Boston for his international trauma conference. And Dr. Gabor Mate will be there as well, who's written this new book, The, the, the Myth of Normal. And um, uh, this is very exciting for me, and I'm making my very first PowerPoint. <laughs> so I'm going to have slides with the talk, and I have to talk for an hour. And, and I've so much enjoyed putting slides together that I'm actually thinking I'm going to do a picture book version of my book online so that with each chapter, you'll see photos from uh, from phenomena that I talk about from my travels from uh, some of the science sources of the brain, uh, you know, uh, so I'm going to do a visual edition down the road. And I'll eventually have those on my website. So people who sign up for my website can can get, you know, sneak peeks of the photo albums that are coming, it'll take me probably some months to pull it together. But that's yeah. coming. That, that sounds like quite a project. But oh, wait, when yeah. is your when is this uh, speech? Uh, it's May 20th in Boston. Oh, very soon. Well, yeah. uh, guys, if you live in the Boston area and you can make it out, go support Adriana while she's giving her speech. Cheer for her. Clap. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> I'm very excited. Adriana, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, huge pleasure. And uh, thanks so much for calling me and, and uh, being excited about my book.